$30 million. That's how much money prosecutors allege China poured into meddling in U.S. elections. Leonardo DiCaprio testifying in the trial of a financier tied to the Chinese regime. But which presidential campaign did the money go to? It wasn't President Biden or President Trump. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Election meddling by China. Not Biden, not Trump, but Obama. That's what prosecutors are alleging, with $30 million on the line. That money, said to have been poured into Obama's 2012 campaign by a financier linked to the Chinese Communist Party. And testifying at the trial is Hollywood superstar Leonardo DiCaprio. But it all starts with a rapper. Here's the story. Praz Michel is a founding member of the 1990s hip-hop group The Fugees. He's currently on trial for an alleged campaign finance conspiracy. Federal prosecutors say Michel was enmeshed in political conspiracies involving millions of dollars in foreign money under two different U.S. presidents. He's accused of funneling money from a fugitive Malaysian financier through straw donors to former President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. That Malaysian financier is named Joe Lowe. Actor Leonardo DiCaprio testified at Michelle's trial this week, saying Lowe planned on giving a significant donation to the Democratic Party that was somewhere to the tune of 20 to 30 million. DiCaprio says he then replied, wow, that's a lot of money. Prosecutors say Michelle received $21 million from Lowe. The DOJ says Lowe and Michelle started the conspiracy to gain access to and influence Obama. U.S. law makes it illegal for foreigners to donate directly or indirectly to U.S. campaigns. Michelle allegedly attempted to conceal the funding. The musician has denied the allegations. Michelle is also accused of lobbying the Trump administration for the Chinese Communist Party. The party's goal was allegedly for the U.S. to send Chinese dissident Guo Wangwei back to China. Just three weeks ago, U.S. prosecutors arrested Guo. They're accusing him of orchestrating a scheme to defraud more than a billion dollars from his online followers. Michelle's lawyers have previously said he's innocent and extremely disappointed in the charges. The defense decided to wait to give its opening statement in the trial that's expected to last weeks. More information on those China ties. The Justice Department has accused Lowe and Michael of lobbying the Trump administration. That's to deport the Chinese dissident at the direction of a high-level official. Although the DOJ didn't name the official in the statement, he's widely believed to be Sun Lijian, China's former vice minister of public security. Also at the vice minister's direction, Lowe allegedly tried to influence the Trump administration to drop an investigation into a multi-billion dollar fraud scheme involving Lowe. In 2012, both the U.S. and Malaysian authorities tried to arrest him over his alleged role in the crime. To escape international arrest, Lowe mainly hid in China. China is warning the U.S. not to provoke it over Taiwan after the island's president met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It's also shoring up relations with other countries. Here are the details. The day after the Taiwanese president met with U.S. lawmakers, China is flexing its own diplomatic muscles. It's hosting the French president and the head of the European Commission while the former Taiwanese president tours the country. China also is warning the U.S. that supporting Taiwanese independence would be a, quote, red line. It is not our intention to escalate. 
House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen say independence wasn't the reason for their meeting. I reiterated Taiwan's commitment to defending the peaceful status quo, where the people of Taiwan may continue to thrive in a free and open society. Bipartisan members of Congress share that take on the self-governing island. We take our support for the people of Taiwan seriously and are determined to speak with one voice. As for the Biden administration, I, uh... it's downplaying the visit. The U.S. acknowledges China's position that Taiwan is part of its country, but doesn't recognize Chinese sovereignty over the island. Transits by high-level uh, Taiwanese authorities are nothing new. Um, they're private, they're unofficial. In fact, every Taiwan president has um, transited the United States. A special patrol in waters close to Taiwan. China's maritime force reacting to the Taiwanese president's meeting in California with House Speaker McCarthy. The inspection operation started on Wednesday in the Taiwan Strait. That's the narrow body of water separating mainland China and Taiwan. Before Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen set off for her home turf, a bipartisan group of lawmakers landed in Taipei. The delegation's lead congressman, Rep. Michael McCall, explains why. Here's more. The head of the House Foreign Affairs Committee touching down in Taiwan Thursday. Chairman Michael McCall is leading a group of lawmakers to visit the island. Right on the heels of a historic meeting between Taiwan's president and America's number three official, Kevin McCarthy, in California. Being here, I think, sends a signal to the Chinese Communist Party that the United States supports Taiwan uh, and that we're going to harden Taiwan uh, and we want them to think twice about invading Taiwan. McCall is set to meet with Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen on Saturday. The talk would focus on weapons deliveries to Taiwan. Even though Washington has signed off on arms deals, the deliveries are facing massive delays. I think the meetings we're going to have here are going to be very important in terms of uh, you know, the next leadership. Uh, you know, meet with President Tsai, uh, talk about weapon systems that I sign off on going into Taiwan to harden Taiwan. Uh, and are they prepared? Are, do we have enough deterrence uh, to stop, you know, aggression coming from communist China? The visit would last for three days. On top of the weapons deliveries, McCall and eight other lawmakers would also discuss regional security and trade. Some Western nations are counting on China to break peace for the Russia-Ukraine conflict. On Thursday, French President Emmanuel Macron met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing. During the meeting, Macron urged Xi to reason with Russia, aiming to bring the Ukrainian war to a close. I know I can count on you, moreover under the two principles I have just mentioned, to bring Russia to its senses and everyone to the negotiating table. Xi, on the other hand, called on the international community to withdraw any action that would lead to what he called further deterioration of the crisis. The Chinese leader is expected to have another meeting with Macron in Guangzhou, a southern city in China. Worth noting, it's rare for Xi to meet foreign officials outside of Beijing. The chief of the European Commission also met with Xi on the same day. Xi claimed that Xi is willing to speak with Ukrainian President Zelensky. The meetings come one day after both leaders urged Europe to open up dialogue with China. Back in February, Beijing rolled out a so-called peace plan for Moscow, urging Western nations to drop all sanctions. 
Despite Beijing's effort to position itself as a neutral peace broker, the proposal was largely dismissed by the West. While a crackdown on China's forced organ harvesting awaits passage into U.S. law, Beijing has devised new ways to shift the blame. It's now trying to drag other nations down into the mud. Here's the latest. China proposed a so-called organ-sharing platform in January, peddling what it calls donated organs to Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan and countries involved in its Belt and Road Initiative. The proposal, made by the CCP's former deputy health minister Huang Jiefu, the one in charge of China's transplantation scheme. Huang has drawn international scorn for alleged involvement in the regime's live organ harvesting crimes. This nonsense. Nonsense. I don't want to answer the questions well, because, uh, no. Well, how come oh, I, 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 I rang up? I was, able to, I was offered a liver very quickly but, but you, from you, a hospital in China. You, how is that possible? I don't want to listen and answer the question. The source of transplanted organs in China remains controversial. Numerous reports and experts say the regime holds incarcerated prisoners of conscience as a pool of organ donors. Most of them are Falun Gong practitioners and other religious minorities. According to USA Today, an estimated 25 to 50,000 inmates are murdered each year for their organs. Although the Chinese Communist Party claims to have established a so-called organ donation system in 2015, its transparency and traceability have remained remarkably low. The use of prisoners' organs and live organ harvesting is still ongoing. Theresa Chu is the leader of an NGO coalition, the Universal Declaration on Combating and Preventing Forced Organ Harvesting. She urges the world to turn away from what she called Beijing's organ diplomacy. With this organ-sharing system, the CCP is seeking to whitewash the stolen, forcibly or live-harvested organs. This is not humane cooperation. We repeat, this is a search for complicity on an international level. News also broke that groups in Japan and South Korea are eyeing organ-sharing with communist China. This has sparked a wave of backlash in both countries. They had pledged to end transplant tourism by the 2008 Beijing Olympics, but failed to keep their promise. These false commitments were made to evade accusations of their live organ harvesting practices. Huang Jiefu is the responsible one. We should think about what kind of cooperation we would have with such a person and such a group. If we join China in organ sharing, it would mean more demand, and more innocent Chinese people will be involved. The Japanese people, who value human rights and the ethics of transplantation, will never share organs of unknown origins that could have been forcibly removed from living human beings. The international community must not participate in the most heinous crime in human history. Back in 2014, China's then-Deputy Health Minister Huang already visited Taiwan to push his cross-strait organ transplant platform. Both Taiwan and Hong Kong turned down his offer. Over to the economy. The financial world is analyzing the annual letter from financial giant J.P. Morgan's CEO. He made predictions about the current banking crisis and surprising warnings about China. Here are the details. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon sent his annual letter to shareholders on Tuesday, saying the banking crisis is not over yet. In this 43-page message, he said, the current crisis is not yet over, and even when it is behind us, there will be repercussions from it for years to come. 
The banking system currently is under renewed stress after the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse's rescue by UBS last month. The letter reads, the stock market is down and the market's odds of a recession have increased. And while this is nothing like 2008, it is not clear when this current crisis will end. According to the CEO, the risks that led to the current crisis were hiding in plain sight. For example, interest rate exposure and the level of uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. Diamond also made blunt statements about the strategic risks China poses, saying China, using subsidies and its economic muscle to dominate batteries, rare earths, semiconductors, or EVs, could eventually imperil national security by disrupting our access to these products and materials. We cannot cede these important resources and capabilities to another country. It's not common for a global business leader to make such direct statements. Reporting by Arian Pastar. NTD News. A new online shopping platform has surpassed Amazon and is surging toward the title of most downloaded app in the United States. It's called Timu. The Chinese-owned app is a sibling of another popular platform, this one based in China called Pinduoduo. Now, Pinduoduo is in the spotlight, with its reach seemingly even broader than TikTok's. Here's the issue. According to cybersecurity experts, Pinduoduo can bypass users' cell phone security. The Chinese app can also monitor the activities of other apps, check notifications, read private messages, and change settings, all without the phone owner's permission or knowledge. Joining us to give insight into the issue is Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners. TikTok has been in the spotlight a lot, especially over security concerns about what happens to U.S. user data in terms of its Chinese parent company, ByteDance, and in lieu of that, perhaps ending up in the hands of the Chinese regime. But it seems there's a, another app that is a Chinese app in China called Pinduoduo, which is basically the biggest shopping app there. And there was a CNN deep dive where experts were noting that this app was able to basically take over phones, especially Android phones. So What's your response to that? Is this surprising to you or what's your take? It is completely not surprising to me. Um, if you understand the CCP, and we have for years, uh, any technology coming out of China is controlled by the CCP and therefore it is weaponized against their own people and if it's weaponized against their own people, so um, the app can absolutely take over your device. What that means is they can install uh, anything that they want remotely onto your device. And we're talking about smart device, meaning smartphones, computers, tablets, and on and on, and watches. But also it can request and get granted additional permissions on that device through the app. I wouldn't have any of those apps on any of my devices or any of my family's devices or any of my worst enemies' devices, to put it to you mildly. And in this case, Pinduoduo is the app in China, Timu being the one in the U.S. So, so far there are no reports about the same thing happening with Timu, but how likely are we to see similar things? Is, does, for instance, does TikTok have the ability to do this, to go around and basically move apps around from what you've seen? Um, from what we've seen, yes, they can. Um, also, you have to understand the nature of software. I actually have a technology background. 
Software can be changed anytime. You can, it's a, it's a shell game with software. All it takes is a few lines of code to make it look differently, to make it send it, to send it through different servers, to make it do different things. So whatever the software is today or how it's launched today, six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now can be completely different uh, in, its, in its weaponization. So remember, software is a moving target. And on that note, it seems there's been more focus on, say, apps that have ties to the Chinese Communist Party. You have TikTok now in the news, also Shine and Timu, the U.S. version of Pinduoduo, and also a new one called CapCut. So what are we seeing in terms of these apps? And can you kind of just break down exactly what the concern is here? National security is the concern. You always have to understand that China is just a puppet as a country. The people who are pulling the strings is this mafia-type organization called the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP. So you have to understand, um, all these apps are coming from an enemy, an enemy who's declared themselves as the enemy. And again, this is the first time we've seen it in writing and in public. Think about that. Why would you ever do business with a country like that, that's controlled by the CCP? Why would you buy products? Why would you invest uh, in the country? Well, let me tell you, I'm the biggest proponent of free speech. The first thing I would do is ban every Chinese application you possibly can. They've done it with our apps. Why are we allowing them in our soil? We can't buy property in China. Why are we allowing them to buy property in the United States? Um, and, and on and on. Uh, turnabout is fair play. Treat the CCP and China the way they are treating us. So no US apps or no free world apps in your country, then guess what? No, no, none of your CCP apps in the United States and the rest of our allies. Coming up, the Chinese Communist Party renaming over a dozen locations and India is taking issue. These places are located at the country's shared border and both of them claim the land as their own. We sat down with Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, for his take on Beijing's tactics and how it ties into Tibet. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. New conflicts at the Chinese-Indian border. This time, it's over the names of around a dozen locations, all of which sit in the nation's disputed border area. The Chinese regime recently renamed them, a tactic to deepen its claim. But experts say there's a deeper motivation behind the move, something they say has been in action for years. We spoke to Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, for more details. Anders Kaur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. So I want to start with this current news coming out that China renamed 11 places along the disputed border with India, and one of them they named Southern Tibet, and India was immediately rejecting this. So what do you make of all of this name calling and name changing? Yeah. China calls uh, Arunachal Pradesh, which belongs to India rightfully, um, and is controlled by India, Southern Tibet. Um, and it's highly offensive to Indians. Um, it's very, it's, a, and it's an aggressive move uh, politically, diplomatically, um, and it only increases tensions between India and China. So 
China is really, Beijing is really shooting itself in the foot uh, when it does things like that. And you mentioned it's an aggressive political and diplomatic move. Why is that? Well, China is always, seems to always be pushing its borders, whether it's in the South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, with Bhutan, with, with um, uh, India, um, everywhere along its borders, even Pakistan a little bit, there's some argument that they're pushing the border a little bit or trying, you know, and they use these what's called uh, incremental tactics to take one teeny sliver of land at a time, um, also called salami slicing. Uh, and they th think that by doing that, they're just going to be able to continually expand their country and no one will ever push back. Um, and sometimes it's true in the South China Sea, we haven't really pushed back enough. And China has these uh, militarized islands there um, in the Arunachal Pradesh region. Um, they have taken some territory. Uh, Ladakh and um, other places have been have been taken by China for, since the 1960s. Really, um, there's it's been on a roll of trying to grab little teeny pieces of territory here and there, um, and it never is makes the opposite capitals very happy. Whoever's getting their land taken from them, um, but it you know sometimes they get away with it. So. And on the note of calling, you know, parts of this southern Tibet, I want to actually zoom in on Tibet. So it seems there's been a lot happening there in terms of the CCP influence or the Chinese Communist Party. You recently had a piece out called Tibetan Independence is Now. Tell us about that. What is happening in terms of Tibet as an independent country? Well, Tibet is has long been subject to genocidal policies by uh, Beijing, by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, people in Tibet um, are now being forcefully, uh, their DNA is getting tested. 80% um, of the children are now um, in, you know, forced to be in state controlled uh, boarding schools away from their parents and grandparents, which makes them uh, alienated from their own families. Over time, they're losing their language, uh, their unable to, to communicate well with their grandparents who only know Tibetan. They're being taught Mandarin Chinese. They're being taught uh, Chinese Communist Party propaganda. So all of these are forms of, uh, you know, when, when looked at together under the United Nations definition, these are considered to be genocide. And there are many Tibetans who do feel very, very independent. Um, the Dalai Lama, the Central Tibetan Administration are both in India in a town called Dharamsala, and uh, they feel independent. They call themselves a government in exile. Um, so technically, from that moral and ethical and even legal perspective, Tibet is an independent country now. They just don't have control, territorial control over their own uh, over the over the, the country, the territory of Tibet. Um, and I think that we should start recognizing that. I think that the United States, Europe, uh, the West in general, our allies, Japan and India, should start explicitly recognizing the Tibetan government um, as an independent country from China. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.